Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. Well, Brendan, it is Monday evening here, May the 9th. Um, again, it's been a little bit. There's a lot going on in the news these days. You got Amber Heard, some Roe v. Wade. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, you were just saying before we, we hit record here, I was chirping you for not being as available as I would like you to be. And you were like, well, it's it's that time of year. We have the B's and the C's going every other night. You're not generally a late night guy, but uh, I'm glad that you are often seemingly very alert and awake tonight. So we can, we get it in when we can. You know, the, the afternoon caffeine probably happened a little bit later than I would have liked today, but the end result is I'm, I'm raring to go at the, in this, at the wee hours. Love to hear that. So we've got a few things to touch on this week. We are going to talk about, one of our favorite recurring topics about where the Republican Party in the United States is these days after a couple of big primaries in Ohio and Indiana and some relevations about House leadership after January 6th last year. So we'll talk about the state of the Republican Party in the United States, and then we'll also pair that by looking at a couple of recent national elections that took place over in Europe and see if there are any any connective tissue uh, between between all of that, uh, anything that any trends that we can global trends that we might be able to see or not see. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about both of those things for a little while. The, the thing that we were excited to talk about because it was dominating the news for a week, about a week ago was Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. And that, that was something that was just everywhere. And when we were planning recording, we're like, oh, we have to talk about that. But as you said, as we all know, the news moves quickly these days. And that seems to have been forever ago. You know, it's, it's the problem we don't get to record every week is that like the news just seems to like move on. So we're going to talk about Elon's takeover of Twitter and potential impl- implications of that. But I guess we're not going to do a whole segment on this, but you and I haven't really talked about what the main conversation that's dominated the news over the past week, which was the, the leaked draft of Justice Alito's opinion on um, the Dobbs v. Jackson uh, Mississippi case. Lot, lots of talk. I don't, I don't think it's worth, I mean, not that it's not worth it, but we're, we'll, we will spend a whole episode doing this. You've been pushing this for a while and I've been kind of like, all right, let's just wait until the opinion comes out. And then shockingly, of course, of course then we have like a leaked opinion come out. Like, no, who could, I mean, really unprecedented, not something we could have foreseen. So uh, are you, without getting into a whole thing. Do you have any just initial thoughts of things that have been in the news over the past week uh, around the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade? Initial thoughts, man. It would be hard to do without, um, yeah, hard to do anything justice without spending too much time on it. Um, I will say, I guess, uh, not a ton of surprise. it's I guess weird, like not a ton of surprise, and yet it's still pretty shocking in in 
in the same way. And I think I'll probably leave it at that. Yeah, that's fair to say. I think that's well said. Again, I am going to wait until the actual opinion comes out because as most people that have been following the news or follow us, which I think is like a pretty sizable middle of the Venn diagram there, is that this was a draft opinion from February. And while it is likely that that's going, the draft opinion is going to the final opinion is probably going to mirror the draft opinion in a lot of like its substantive, you know, underpinnings and reasoning. There's still things around the edges that could have been changed. There's still like vote swapping that happens. There's still some things that could change. So we'll wait and do a, a full recap when the actual opinion comes out in the next month, six weeks or so. Uh, but it is shocking that this draft opinion was leaked. And I know the justices are furious and it's gotten a little bit lost, understandably so, because people are so emotional over the actual like substance of the opinion and what it means like legally. But the fact that someone leaked a draft opinion, like I said, it's unprecedented and is another one of those things where just just like the norms of like our, our institutions seem seem to just consistently be eroding. But that, that was shocking. I, I was pretty, as someone that's like entering the legal profession, not only, I guess, shocked, but like pretty upset about it. It seemed, at least from my outside vantage point, designed to put pressure on a couple of particular justices, probably Kavanaugh and Roberts. And so it's, you know, while maybe it's just, the court has become so politicized. It's foolish to think that it's not yada, yada, yada. This was seemed to me like a real naked attempt to put political pressure on a couple of justices to change like lead their legal opinions or, or affect their legal opinions. And again, in at least the modern history of the court, I'm not sure. I don't think this has ever happened. Certainly not something on, on the scale of a case like this. So uh, very disappointed in the fact that this draft was leaked is it so it's your impression that it was leaked in order to turn votes or to maintain votes well so again without knowing the final opinion and knowing what where the justices are going to fall i don't think i'm taking too big of a leap here to think that alito thomas gorsuch and coney barrett are going to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I don't think I'm taking too big a leap to think that Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor are going to dissent. So it's really the, those two justices were, you know, the swing votes or whatever here, those the, the justices that could potentially have gone either way. It seems likely given that Alito is writing the majority opinion that Kavanaugh sided with him and Roberts was probably trying to take some middle ground as he often does. And so, yes, I guess my my take on it would be that it was designed to try to pressure Robbins and Kavanaugh off of signing on to that opinion. Interesting. I mean, at least the, the news outlets that I've followed have sort of floated as, as it could have been either way, either. Yeah, either someone who is pro uh, choice and pro abortion rights um, trying to pressure those two justices to change their opinion or and on the flip side being that like there was 
possibility that they might have been leaning towards changing their opinion. And so this leaking of the document was to kind of put pressure on them to say that, like, no, you have to, like, maintain what you've already gone with. That, that I mean, I, I, uh, I guess I, I found both of those plausible, but I guess I'm not really sure why. Um, I don't see the incentive for a conservative justice to leak it here. Like theoretically conservatives are getting exactly what they, we have wanted for 50 years to have all this backlash. There's very little good that could have come from this. Yeah. I, well, I guess they were also saying that clerks and other like members of the justices, like little cabinet team, like they're, is an extended family that's privy to, to some of these. Oh, definitely. I don't, I don't think one of the, the justices themselves oh, okay, okay. did this at all. I think this is definitely someone lower on in. I, it'll be really interesting to see. I know Robert said that there's going to be a full T director of the Department of Justice to do like a full investigation on it as well. He should. I, I do think that's going to be fascinating because it's hard to believe that someone gets to a point where you are working for Supreme Court justice. Those are some of the, like the most difficult jobs to get and your whole reputation is built in the legal community on stuff like this. But it's hard to imagine that someone would, would take that risk without, I don't even know, potential guarantees of a job somewhere else. Or I, like, I really, I, I really can't even like fathom that someone would risk their, their reputation in the legal community to do something like this. It's that's why I, I keep coming back to that word. The, the fact that this leaked at all is shocking. I feel like they're banking on a book deal on the other end. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And I guess maybe they'll be a, a hero or a martyr or whatever they want to call themselves. But that was the, the news that has dominated the past week. So I felt like we need to at least address that briefly, but we will do a more in-depth conversation on that when, if and when the opinion does, does come down. Um, so look Which it, it, it is due like in June. Yeah, that, that was always, that's when these these opinions of this term should come out is yeah. generally mid-June. So yeah, I will obviously keep an eye out for that, but it will be important, again, just to react. Just I, I understand with the news cycle, everyone wants to just react in the moment, and I, I understand the emotion around this issue, but we'll try to reserve some of our judgment until we see the actual final draft. But uh, let's get into some of the other, the other topics that we wanted to discuss uh, before we do all that, just a reminder to everyone out there that the podcast is brought to you by all the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. So, you know, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, that's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. And in some news, uh, their founder just had his second child. Jeez. Yeah, am I breaking that news to you too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, go support them. I'm trying to raise not only a small business, but a, now a family on that small business. So if, if you're looking for some really quality furniture, go give, give them a shout over at Canada Woodworking. Definitely. All right, so we talked about this. This was just dominated at least social media, but also traditional media uh, just two weeks ago, again, it seems like forever ago, but uh, Elon Musk making good on what had been rumored. And then all of a sudden the rumors picked up steam and all of a sudden it was like, oh my goodness, he's actually going to do it. So it, it appears that he is going to buy Twitter and that has or set off a, a furor, particularly amongst liberals. I, 
and I'd be curious to your reaction of Elon Musk buying it, all of the the the, the firestorm around his buying it. Well, what are your thoughts on this? How, how much how much are we going to care about this in six months or a year? I mean, I was I was a bit surprised that it felt like within two weeks. I mean, obviously you know, what's going on with the Supreme court has a lot to do with how quickly our uh, news cycle gave up on this story, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think in a year or two, we're, we're probably not going to care because the people be like, there have been people behind the scenes in many different capacities, like the Murdochs and, you know, other sort of leaders of various news organizations. And now, it's yeah it's a part of the story but i don't think it's gonna be something dominating i i wonder so i I mean i guess let's start with like the reason that he did this basically he was saying that twitter is like stifling my free speech i want to be able to tweet whatever i want and either they were deleting some of his tweets or uh, i don't i don't exactly know what his like what the specific tweet led to his like complete outburst that was like, I'm going to buy Twitter and like unlock its potential. Um, I, I think, yeah, I guess I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think it's a huge mistake for him. Uh, Like wading into these, like, you know, quote unquote, first amendment issues where there is, you know, a, a degree of, of, public safety involved with what happens on Twitter because of the reach that it has, the reach that, you know, somebody's tweets can have. Um, And so, and we've talked about this before that first amendment does protect free speech, but it doesn't necessarily protect sort of freedom from consequence. And does Twitter have an obligation as like a megaphone to, you know, do some sort of moderation? I think, reasonable people can agree or disagree, but I don't think that Elon Musk has like the golden ticket or answer. I mean, he's got a pretty ardent following, but I don't think that that makes that this question any easier. And if his answer is simply like, let's just raise the floodgates and like, see what happens. I don't think that's going to be a particularly great solution for Twitter as a business entity um but <laughs> i guess we'll have to wait and see on that i don't know what are your thoughts i guess yeah, so, I, yeah not really cogent here i i sent you an article by ishan wong who was the ceo of reddit from i think 2012 to 2014 and ishan was writing this article as kind of someone one of the very few people in the world who's actually run a massive like social media website and trying to give Elon some advice, some perspective. And a couple of things that are, I didn't really agree with all the points he made, but I did think it was a really interesting perspective that just, I couldn't possibly have right again, as he wrote, it's just something that very few people have experience doing. So he wrote that Elon like him is an internet 1.0 guy. And for people that are on the internet, like you and I are, Internet 1.0, it, we didn't even really get to experience that. We got to experience maybe the tail end of Internet 1.0, but really that's uh, like an, an analogy, euphemism, whatever, for 
the internet when it was kind of like the wild, wild west, when it was really just like message boards were popping up and people could maybe see the full potential or, or maybe the outlines of what the internet could be, but hadn't quite gotten there yet. And it was just seen as this incredible opportunity, this incredible platform that was going to make everything better and that everyone was going to have a voice. And that's really how Twitter comes about, right? Is that like now anybody can get on with 140 characters and say whatever they want, right? And that seems like a great thing, right? It's, it's super egalitarian. And for people that want to amplify other voices and get other people involved in the conversation, like you and I have like long wanted to happen, like these seem like, good adventures and progress. And Yishan was kind of saying that that's how Elon views Twitter in that when Twitter is censoring people for all sorts of reasons, that he views that as like anathema to what he believes the internet should be, which is pretty much like people should be able to get on and say what they want to say. Elon is in a lot of ways, a libertarian in, in like, at least with his first amendment stuff where he's pretty much like that libertarian belief of how do you combat like bad speech just with more good speech, right? And so you, you let everyone say what they want to say. And then if, if there are enough people can shout it down, that mark free marketplace of ideas, the, the best ideas rise and all like the hateful rhetoric will just fade because not enough people believe in it. It doesn't have a firm hold on people. And that, that, that's admirable. And quite honestly, like I kind of believe that too. But Ishan's point was that when you run a large social media company like this, as you were alluding to, there are consequences. And when people start saying things, you can't just say like, hey, marketplace of ideas, when it's having like real life consequences and people's like real day-to-day like physical lives are potentially being like placed in danger because of what's now said on, on the internet. And that's where Yishan was kind of like, at some point as free speech as you want to be, as first amendment libertarian as you want to be, at some point as a company, you are going to have to make calls. And that's just, that's the job. And you might say that like some of those calls at first seem super obvious, but inevitably those calls start to get more gray. And his point was that most of the people running these sites, whether it's Reddit or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or MySpace or Twitter or whatever, they're generally not out there trying to censor people for what they believe in. They're really just trying to ensure that the platform and the product keeps up so they can keep the business running. I'm not sure I totally agree with that, but I I kind of understand the point. And so that will be really interesting because as you're saying, like Elon seems just want to go in guns blazing and say like, take, take all the restrictions off here. Let's see what happens. Let's let Twitter be the place where I always wanted it. We always thought the internet should be. And I don't know, I, 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 I have, you know, like you naively, at least me naively, you hope something like that works and just free speech works and the marketplace works, but not, I don't know that that's the, that the people on Twitter are like the true marketplace of I, or I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I want to say it, but like the people on Twitter, I'm not sure that that's really the marketplace. Yeah. yeah. Or like you know, the actual marketplace of ideas somehow like continually gets drowned out by the noise, which ostensibly like, yeah, is, could, could Twitter do something to deal with? I mean, I think part of it, right. Like the weaponization of Twitter or any of this social media 
is primarily like what individual people are doing after they read stuff on social media like are they going to storm the capital or are you know they going to do something that we find that you know that that's more or less illegal um and can often be harmful or violent or or whatever yeah i mean i'm pr- I probably fall more on your side of this like to me there's like a, a little bit of an element of personal responsibility here that like we're almost trying to prove that everybody is like very susceptible to being brainwashed by saying that nobody can read ridiculous stuff on the internet and certainly like we've seen that (laughs) fake news for lack of a better term can spread very quickly and that even legitimate news organizations are often (laughs) spreading misinformation because they think that it's true and they want to be like front to the story and they use these platforms to do that kind of thing. Um, But like, would it be easier for us to deal with that? I mean, would it be easier for us to say that like, that is an unfortunate reality that we have to accept. And the way that we deal with that is that we continue to hold people accountable for their individual actions. I mean, and, and that isn't to say that if somebody does tweet something that incites violence that, you know, we like that they can also be held accountable. And and right now that feels like the big gray area that people can just say whatever they want. And there is no accountability for what you say on the internet and i think that i think that that's what would be more ideal but yeah i i really think that it's going to be difficult for elon to like jump in there and sure all right so let's build off that a little bit then because i agree that this just seems like an unwinnable quagmire here like uh, that either he is going to take all of the restrictions off everything and potentially bad things happen or it just becomes even more of a cesspool than it already is. And then you're getting criticized perhaps rightly for some of that stuff. Or at some point you do have to start putting restrictions in and then everyone says, Oh, he, he just became like the, the everyone else. Right. And uh, we thought Elon was different. Right. And so it just seems like that some adventure like this is going to take up a lot of his time and energy. And this was another argument that Ishan brought up and it's not unique to him. This is something that's a lot of, source that I brought up is that Elon Musk is a fascinating guy and a super intelligent guy. You can think what you want about him. You can like him, you can hate him, but he is responsible right now for two of the most interesting companies in the world in Tesla and SpaceX. And those companies are doing a lot of really important things. Again, you don't have to like, like what he's doing, but in terms of like, it's the market leader in electric vehicles. And it's also one of, if not the market leader in bringing access to space much more widely to the general population. And again, obviously he is not running the day-to-day operations of those two companies. He has lots of smart people under him. You don't get to be where he is without employing people and delegating responsibility, but it just seems inevitable that like this Twitter is going to take up a lot of his time and energy that could potentially be going to a different project. And so from that sense, what do you think? Do you think it, it it's worth it for him? Uh, if so, why, if not, why not? Uh, I mean, 
Yeah, well, I guess it's hard to answer if it's worth it for him to not not being his <laughs> not really right. under, not really, really understanding. It is, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it, but, but a, I I think like for people in general, it's a it's a it's a loss. Um, Twitter, in and of itself, has brought a lot of innovation to sort of the social media space, and like there have been a lot of kind of important developments of Twitter and it acts as kind of like a good check against some of these other social media companies. That's just like another vehicle for people to get um, for, yeah, for people to like express themselves. But I think Elon's talents lie in technological innovation and kind of driving forward, like you said, electric cars, space travel for whatever that's worth. And um, but other things like, like that. And I think this space is a very different space. And he talks about like unlocking the true potential and like really Twitter monetarily, the only thing that it's going to do is going to figure out more ways to get ads in front of people's faces and sell those ads. And so like, is humanity benefiting greatly from Twitter figuring out how to be more profitable in its ad algorithms? Like, I don't think so. Whereas electric vehicles, I'm, you know, I, I'm hugely a proponent of that. So that there's there's definitely that aspect. Um, All right. So that's generally my feeling on it too. I will say that I had this conversation with somebody else and made those same arguments where his contributions to him, humanity, and again, as you rightly pointed out, he can do whatever he wants with his money. And we are just literally armchair quarterbacks here judging him for what he wants to do. So he can do whatever he wants. But if we're just looking at this, like stepping back, like where can he be most good like for like a utilitarian humanity purpose it's it seems to me that he would be most good using his talents in other ways but then the other person made the argument back to me that if you do see twitter as the premier platform for free speech in the country maybe in the world and you do believe that this is the future like marketplace of ideas where before it was really just the public square and then it was newspapers and then it was radio. And now, now it's Twitter theoretically that his ability to unlock the full potential of Twitter is actually crucial for humanity. And I was like, I was thinking back and I was like, huh, I don't know if I believe that, but I wouldn't be surprised if he believes it. Oh, I mean, yeah, he he definitely believes it. I mean, and there's something for people of his like level of genius that consistently believe that like everything they do is for the betterment of humanity. If only very stable just, genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I mean, I think that's an interesting point. I. I think that there are like plenty of other platforms now that are just cropping up that'll let you say whatever you want. So if Twitter becomes one of those, I don't necessarily know that it's like adding a ton, but I guess that remains to be seen. I got a question for you though, in that, you know, you were saying he's a billionaire. He can kind of do whatever he wants. Is this good for humanity that as a billionaire, he objects to, Twitter's whatever censoring of some of his tweets or I I still don't know exactly what what got him so mad that he had to buy Twitter but he went out 
46, 43, whatever billion dollars later, and now he owns Twitter, and now he makes the rules. Is that good for humanity? I don't know. It's hard to say that anybody like making the rules is good. It, it, it keeps coming back to this question where I, I do think this is a rather novel legal question of our platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, are they what are known in legal circles as common carriers? So what are, which are basically like, should they be regulated as public entities because they're just so important? So like, like in the same way that like trains or hotels, the federal government, state governments are able to regulate those places because it's just when you're open to the public like that, we just feel like there are certain regulations that you have to abide by. And that's all the First Amendment stuff on Twitter. Like, is Twitter a private company or is it so big that it should really be considered like almost a public service, a public utility in that, in that sense where anytime anybody is making the rules there, it's, it's semi-dangerous. But I don't know, like even I was referencing the, the newspapers earlier and I, I don't know all their names, but like Hearst, Charlie, Hearst, was, was he the Citizen King guy? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Like, it's It's... Oftentimes, like rich people have, you could argue that rich people have always kind of controlled the media here, and whether even the, the Murdochs or I don't know who's in charge, like the board by board of Viacom, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, so is is do I think this is any different? Really? No, that does that doesn't concern me a whole lot, especially because, and again, Elon might be kind of one of a kind, but it doesn't feel like he's buying this with the with the desire to censor people that have different opinions than him. It's more that he actually wants to open things up. Yeah. I think it would be a different question. And maybe this is just the other side of the same coin that if, if who knows if, if Bezos or Zuckerberg or you know, Gates or whomever, if they wanted to buy something and then start censoring people that have different opinions, that's obviously more problematic, but you're saying that we're just kind of lucky, I guess that like Elon doesn't want to do that. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, I see your question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing that's tricky about this is that he doesn't have to like, you don't have to know whether he wants to do it or not. Right. Like the algorithms technically can promote certain things and sort of funnel things to larger audience or smaller audiences. Right. There's obviously you see what you, what your followers post or, you know, who you follow post, but then you you also see kind of like, other public posts and the way you see public posts is whether or not Twitter kind of decides to show it to you based on whether it's trending or not. But now, I mean, yeah, who knows what Jack Dorsey thought was, was worthy to be trending before, but now it's what Elon thinks is should be trending. And that, I think there is something to be said for that. Um, I mean, yeah, we struggle, like we know kind of the infrastructure and like the challenges that some of our like physical public utilities have. And so it sometimes doesn't feel like that's the best way to go in order to kind of promote the additional innovation or growth in the space. But at the same time, yeah, it also doesn't seem right that we're just passing the baton of like who sets the rules from one super rich individual to another one who has, yeah, he, he says like, I'm, I'm very big first amendment guy, but he also, you know, he has things that he thinks are right and things that he thinks are wrong. And 
who, yeah, who knows what it'll show up as. Yeah, ultimately, I personally fall more, not going to shock you, probably anybody that's listened before, of like more like free market side of things is like, let Elon do what he wants. And if people don't like Twitter, I know this was it's funny that the left was saying this for so long. Oh, you don't, you don't, your, your people are getting banned. Trump's banned. Like, well, go find another place. It's, this is a private company here. And now Elon's got it. And everyone's like crying. And it's like, all right. And all the right people are like, all right, well, go find your own space now. You know, it's, it's how quickly like uh, people turn and recycle the exact same arguments. But I guess I do think there is, and I know it's not easy to start another Twitter, but Twitter wasn't anything, you know, 12 years ago. So in all of these other places that I mentioned were all startups and TikTok, no one had heard of that three years ago. And now it's a massive app. So I am quite certain that there will be other platforms that come along. And if people don't like Twitter, then don't be on it. And just to be clear, a very tiny percentage of Americans and people across the world are on Twitter. So as, as loud as Twitter can be, it's very much a, a small echo chamber for people of all sides in there. Um, I guess last thing that I want to say on this is one of the big things that people are wondering is President Trump was obviously kicked off post January 6th is, you know, if, if and when Elon takes over, is he going to let him back on? And then is Trump going to join? Trump says, no, I'm not going to join. I'm going to stick with true social. Seems to be killing it out there. Uh, and then you get that everyone has to get reactions to that, right? And some people are saying, we'd love him to stay off, right? Like they, he's actually, the last two years, the last year has actually been really good for him. It's allowed him not to just like shoot from the hip and, and say borderline crazy things on there. And other people are like, well, if he comes back, he will dominate the space and, get kind of get his ideas in the ball. He can reach a bigger audience doing that. Um, whatever remains to be seen. But I suppose when we come back, let's talk the status of Trump and the GOP. You know, we, we need to do this every, at least every, every couple of months just to check in on the status report on today's Republican party. Yeah. So two things that I wanted to talk about, get your thoughts on, and just just talk this out is, one, we're starting to get into primary season for the 2022 midterms. And last week, there were a couple of big ones in Indiana and Ohio. President Trump had a great evening in those states in every single race that he endorsed, he won, which is fairly remarkable, most notably in the... Ohio Senate race, the the Republican primary, he endorsed J.D. Vance, who people who are plugged into the political world have probably heard of, but also you might have heard of, he wrote a book called Hillbilly Elegy, which was a massive hit a few years back and has gone on to do a few different things, but is is now running for Senate. When President Trump endorsed him, he was in fourth place, I believe. It was all pretty tight, but Vance was definitely trailing. Trump took a risk in endorsing him, but once he endorsed him, Peter Thiel threw him a billion dollars. That's an exaggeration, but threw him a lot of money. Trump went and campaigned for Vance a couple of times, and Vance came out on top and is now the favorite to replace the retiring Rob Portman in Ohio, which is significant. And Trump had a great night, and there's just, just no one denying it. Everyone framed the night as a bit of a referendum on how much power does does Trump really have because obviously he was the most important endorsement while he was the president 
January 6th happened last year. Last year is largely an off year for elections. The, the big election was the Virginia gubernatorial race. And in that race, the successful strategy was shying away from Trump and not really bringing up and making more about kitchen table issues. And so this was kind of a test to see how much sway does President Trump and his endorsements really hold. And for at least last week, it's still pretty sizable in both Josh Hawley and Mitt Romney came out when we asked questions and both Tolly and Romney are on complete opposite sides of the Republican party at this point. And both of them said, look, if president Trump wants to be the nominee in 24, he's going to be the nominee. I don't know whether or not he wants it, but there's no reason to think that anyone could plausibly put up to gather enough momentum to stop him. So it was interesting how quickly that happened. Kind of along those same lines, within the last week or two, there's a there's a book coming out uh, written by two New York Times reporters about January 6th and the aftermath of it. And they've been leaking different parts, as you do in, bro- in book promotion. And they said that post-January 6th, the Speaker of the House for the Republican leader in the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, had called on President Trump to resign. And McCarthy came out and said, I absolutely did not say that. The next day they dropped the tapes and McCarthy is on, on tape saying exactly that. This is not a shock to anyone that knows Kevin McCarthy. People, both Republicans and Democrats, say that he has, I guess, a shaky relationship with the truth. I, so it was not, it's not a huge surprise. He also goes on on these tapes to say that he wishes some of his other members' Twitter accounts could be suspended and later gets around talking about the 25th Amendment, which is when you you invoke, we, we talked about that briefly last year, but uh, the amendment where you invoke if the president is incapacitated anyways, he says, well, the 25th Amendment isn't quick enough to do what we really need to do. Not only is this notable because Kevin McCarthy is maybe the third biggest figure in Republican politics behind Trump and McConnell and is poised in next year to take over the Speaker of the House, but McCarthy has also spent the last year suckling at the teat of Mar-a-Lago Donald Trump and just everything has been Trump, 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 MAGA. And so it was, again, not shocking to hear that McCarthy was not telling the truth, but a little bit surprising to think that one of President Trump's most vocal allies and one of the most visible allies over the last year in private had been talking about getting him to resign and replacing him. And so reporters, of course, are going to Trump and asking, like, are you going to cut McCarthy's legs out from underneath him, which he absolutely has the power to do. And and Trump hasn't so far, although he is definitely going to hold this over him. And people close to Trump are pretty much saying the reason he hasn't is that he likes that McCarthy came back to him, is that he feels it actually shows he has more power, where he had all these people deserting him in the wake, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, but almost all those people have become crawling back to him. And Trump, narcissist that he is, but also he's correct, it does show the power that he still has. And all of those people that were looking to 25th Amendment him after are now back at his feet, touting him as like the leader of the Republican Party. And so, yeah, that, that, was, that was a lot. But I just felt like, you know, those two developments in the past two weeks, we sat here a year and a half ago, and we pretty much said that's got to be the end of him. There's just no way you come back from something like this. And 
16 months later, he's back, perhaps as strong as ever. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting what you said about his suspension from Twitter, um, like being helpful, because I think it let him get back to doing what he kind of does best, which is like, not really say much, have a few pep rallies, fire off like a few one-liners, make up some names that he can call some people. And, and then just like, let, you know, the myth, the, the, the man, the myth, the legend of Donald Trump, just like do its own thing. And yeah, I mean, the, the, like, even with JD Vance, I think when Trump was first running for, um, election he came out and said like a bunch of bad things about yeah. donald trump like this guy's a loser and yeah, a he was like a for trump. <laughs> yeah yeah for like yeah until all of a sudden trump won and trump even said like well of course he said that in 2016 everyone was saying that in 2016 so if i cut everybody who said bad stuff about me back then out of my life then i would have nobody now but i mean i yeah i i think it's it's, it's really a lot it says a lot less about these people than it does about just kind of like the sad state of american politics where you feel like hey if i take a principled stance on like the one thing where it probably matters for me to take a principled stance i don't have a shot like i'll be i will be sent out like you know tomorrow basically especially for people in the house who have these midterms and freaking Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene are just like showing up at your door, like the grim reaper and the crypt keeper being like, this is it for you. End of the line, you're no longer on Trump's good side. And, and that's, and that's it. He's like the kingmaker in the Republican party right now. And the main thing is that like moderate voices are just not reliable primary voters, um, unfortunately. And we have a primary system that, yeah, I mean, how many, like, 10 Republicans were running in the in the Republican primary in Ohio? And, I don't know, J.D. Vance probably got, like, 20%, 15%, or 25, maybe? Yeah, somewhere in that. Like yeah, 20. 27%. Okay, so of nine candidates, he was, yeah, maybe the top one out of them, but, you know, this is where we are, and, and this is a system that, you know, who knows if any of the people who voted for him were really moved by his book or they're still just kind of like, well, Donald Trump said to vote for you. So I'm, I'm going to go with it and we'll see how that works out for me. It's yeah. I don't, I don't know that I'm surprised. Um, and yeah, I, we, we've been living in a world where people kind of have, different realities but i i think i almost like it's not that i hold him any less responsible but there are there are so many freaking enablers at this point like the kevin mccarthy's like the lindsey grahams like mitch mcconnell's that like i'm not even sure that i can really blame donald trump for what's going look for what's really happening in the republican party they all had the opportunity to actually impeach him the second time and just be done with it right and every one of them was like worried about getting reelected. now they don't have it now if he wants to run for president like 
Mitt Romney said, nobody else, everyone else is going to have to step out of the way because they're afraid of his wrath. So it's like a very interesting catch 22 that they've all put them in. I don't know. As a Republican, how do you feel about this all? Not a registered Republican, but uh, how do I feel about it? I don't know. I feel that we are likely headed for another Trump-Biden race in 2024, and that seems just super depressing to me. Like it's, I think both of them believe that they are the only one, and this might be correct, honestly. So like, I think they both correctly believe that they're the only one that could potentially stop the other guy. And... I don't know. It just feels like 2016 was bad and 2020 felt worse. And we're getting we're getting at the same race in 2024. Are like, you kidding me? So that that's a little depressing. Um, I Trump is not infallible. I while he was undefeated last week, he's likely to be unsuccessful in a couple of his gubernatorial endorsements, particularly down in Georgia, which you know, knock on wood on that one, I suppose. Uh, it will be super interesting for me to watch the Cheney primary out in Wyoming and also Murkowski's in Alaska because both of those women are, are pinning their hopes on moderate independent voters coming to their their aid in the primary. And that will be interesting to watch. But yeah, in some ways, Romney's reaction is right. Like Romney is clearly than the most anti-Trump senator out there. And but he he's not stupid. Like he he sees the writing on the wall. What do you what are you gonna do? Right? You just keep doing the best you can and you got you gotta acknowledge the reality. Yeah. And he's also what, not up for election until 26 or 24? Yeah, he's got at least a few more years. Yeah. So like we'll see where things stand in two years if he's still talking shit. <laughs> because i mean it it like if if things continue the way they continue like he won't be because utah is another place where like it's by virtue of the fact that senate seats are six years instead of two these guys have a little bit more leeway also because they know people don't remember much to to kind of say some things now but come election time yeah, he's going to, he, he will fall back in line, of course, depending on, I mean, there's a lot that can happen between yeah. now and then, but I don't, it, it, as much as I would like to pat Mitt Romney on the back for his principles and morals, I really, I can't do, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. I'll do it for us. Uh, one thing that I did read that was interesting, though, is a lot of the people that Trump is endorsing and who are winning these races so far are young. And that's the 30s, early 40s. And just how similar to McConnell's strategy with like seating the lower rungs of the federal judiciary with conservative leading justices is you can have an outsized impact on that where, as you and I have discussed many times, Trump is one of one, right? He's a, he's a singular figure in United States politics, the world really. I, and whoever takes his mantle, if and when he decides to step off the stage is not, I can't imagine has the same Trump-like cult following. But if you keep putting in place people that believe the same things you do, speak the same way you do, if you if you put them into the House and if you put them into the Senate, if you put them into governor's mansions and attorney general's offices, 
what you're doing is you're seeding the party to be your party and then the party of your ideas for an extended period of time. And if you are a Trump person, that's awesome. If you are not, it's going to be, this doesn't seem like a, a, a fad. This seems like something that, that could extend and could be the foundation of the Republican Party for years to come. Yeah, which is, yeah, I mean, I guess to a certain degree, the, the level to which it gets entrenched is worrisome, definitely. Um, I think this may actually be an interesting way to segue into uh, something that I wanted to flag for you, or that I did just shoot over as like a potential idea. I know we don't talk a ton about foreign politics because my, like, I feel like already (laughs) it's hard enough to keep up with everything that's going on here, but there were a couple of elections over in Europe um, that I thought were interesting insofar as like potential indicators for what we are seeing or what we may see in the midterms. And then of course, if Trump runs again, all the way out into 2024. So uh, two that I, that I, you know, uh, shot your way were um, the elections in France and the elections in Hungary. Um, Which one do you want to start with? Let's do France first. Okay. So I really don't know much about the elections in Hungary other than who won. <laughs> who won. Good so I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You flipped the coin, you flipped it right. Um, so the elections in France were, were really interesting. The, it came down again to uh, the current president, Emmanuel Macron, um, and this other woman whose name is Marine Le Pen. And Le Pen um, basically runs a platform very similar to Donald Trump's in France. So it's like a French, France first, France for the French kind of, there's like a, a pretty overt anti-immigrant stance. It's a lot of isolationism, a lot of, you know, the current government doesn't work for working people. And, and like Trump got a lot of um, initial support, but in this election, um, failed to sort of win, uh, well, failed to win the majority of votes. And there are a couple of things that I thought were particularly interesting. I think the one that I wanted to highlight for you and ask you about is the, um, the I guess, like the, the election system that they have there in France. Um, did you follow that at all? Yeah, a little bit. So... I guess for those who are not familiar in, in France, they basically have an initial election where anybody can run and the top two vote getters will face each other in a runoff election. And so there were several challengers um, to Le Pen who ran, or not several, but there was at least one, one other candidate who ran a very similar uh, candidacy to Le Pen and sort of challenged her on the right, from the right. Then there were some other sort of center right, center left candidates that that ran, and then a couple of more or less like joke candidates that that ran as well. 
Um, and then it kind of came down to Macron and Le Pen. And I think one of the things to me that's really interesting about that is that you don't have in kind of the final election, you don't have some of the noise of uh, these sort of smaller parties that I think in general are really important, but in a presidential election can sway the vote without necessarily intending it to. So here we had, you know, a libertarian candidate that that ostensibly probably took votes away from Trump in some of the states like Georgia and maybe Arizona, where things came down to just a couple thousand votes and ended up, you know, having a non-inconsequential impact on the election without winning, you know, more than say two one percent of the vote, if that, right? So curious as to your thoughts of like how how that sort of thing played out, if you think that was actually um, influential in how the election was decided, or if there's kind of other inferences that you're taking from from what we saw there. Yeah, it was an interesting election, as you said, for obviously for a number of reasons. I think I'm not a huge fan of Macron. Uh, at least from afar. I don't, again, I, how much do I know about him really surface level, but I'm not, not his biggest fan. I guess he would probably be described in American politics as like moderate to like center left. Is that how you would describe him? Yeah. Yeah. In some ways he's almost like a, like a Joe Biden type candidate uh, or president where there are people on the far left that aren't super thrilled with him and everyone to the right is not a big fan of his, but he seemed like the lesser of two evils in this point, which again is maybe a very, a very like mirror to American politics and where we all sometimes think that we're so exceptional. We get, we get in our like, Oh, look at what's happening in the United States. Everyone gets so up in arms. Then you look around the world. I'm glad you're bringing this up. And it's like, Oh, these same debates are happening in in many Western countries. But I thought that his reelection was important. First of all, he was the first president reelected in France since Jacques Chirac in 2002. So credit to him for that. Uh, but I thought his reelection was really important at this particular time because, as you said, Le Pen is a nationalist. And while there are lots of valid reasons to want to put your country first and be a nationalist at this very moment in history, Western countries, the United States, European Union, NATO countries are very much aligned in combating Russian aggression in, in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine. And if Le Pen had won and people thought this election was going to be pretty close, there was a sizable chance that she would start to pull French support back from providing support to the Ukraine and to NATO and to Eastern Europe. And if that happens, maybe some of the other European countries look around and say, like, well, why are we giving all of our resources over there? And you could have quite quickly had a collapse of like the current alliances that are happening here. there might be people out there that there are definitely people out there that would have said that's a good thing, but it just felt as someone in my position who wants to combat Russian aggression, having someone that does want to engage in uh, multilateral alliances, multilateral, like liberal democratic alliances was important. So in that sense, I'm pleased that uh, Macron won. Uh, it is worth noting that while the final election, I think it was something, I think she, it was like 58, 42, something like that. 
so while it didn't end up being as close as some people thought, this was the same final again. Interestingly enough, this was the same final two that were in the 2017-2018 election. And uh, Le Pen's vote share went up. I think she won 33% in 2017 and 2018, now up to 42%. So it, it does show, like, as we're trying to examine these connective tissues, it does show that these more nationalist, America first, France first type of beliefs are still very much alive and well, and perhaps growing in, in a lot of places which is certainly a significant trend to, to observe. And if you, again, taking it back to the United States, you look at like how Biden ran, one of the things he ran on was kind of restoring like the old world order. And you have President, former President Obama now, who's been going around and doing, been, he's a little bit, been a little bit more active in the past couple of months in terms of getting out there and making speeches. I think he made one at Stanford recently and then one over in Europe where he's out there combating disinformation and saying how disinformation is, damaging to like the foundations of democracy. So you have really a clash in a lot of ways between people that believe in a lot of like the more liberal, traditional, small D democratic values of that we've seen more like the globalization over the past 50, 70 years versus like this new decade of leaders like Le Pen, like Trump, like Viktor Orban, who are leading movements that are a backlash against those things. I know I didn't answer your question about the the system there, but is there anything you want to hop in on there? No, I mean, I, I think that that, um, I, I think that that is, is largely exactly right. I, there, there are like a couple of things that I, I, I guess I wanted to highlight that contrast, um, France's election with Victor Orban's, um, but maybe to your larger point, just like, you know, what we're sort of seeing globally, I think, I guess in, in some ways, you know, people who like want to champion democracy would say that Macron winning against Le Pen is actually, is, is good for democracy for all the reasons that you highlighted that, that her candidacy was going to be taking France away from NATO and not um, and yeah, and potentially weakening that alliance in the face of Russia, which, you know, you would point as like maybe the most anti-democratic force in the world today. Right. Um, I think the thing that's interesting about that is that Putin was democratically elected whenever he was like 20 or 15 or 20 or so years ago. And I think we see things like that with Viktor Orban today in Hungary and how he's got um, kind of a, a, a pretty firm grip on the Hungarian, I mean, democracy, it's almost a sham democracy now. So the big thing about the elections in Hungary is that like his can't hit the opposition candidate was basically like given zero airtime. Um, this is something that like came up a, a bunch where there it was basically impossible for the the candidate who he was running against to say anything um about about either about his candidacy or about Viktor Orban um and so I, th- I what what I think is interesting and in how that ties into sort of the problems with misinformation what you were saying with you know how Obama's kind of 
pushing like the old world order and almost suggesting that misinformation is the driver behind our deviation from, you know, our natural progression, um, you know, for, <laughs> for a lot of liberal and progressive causes, but also just in general, like globalization and more interconnectedness. Um, and I, and I think that that's a tricky one because I think for people, even like, like me, who is just skeptical in nature, you know, a lot of what happened in 2016, like I felt like people just like had to have been duped, but elections are about so much more than what people like understand. It's almost just like a, are we happy or are we not kind of a um, exercise of the ballot box, it feels like. And so like, I think misinformation is obviously a problem. I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I like, how do you feel about its impact in, in light of kind of like our historical, I don't know if the tact is, but like, you know, we've seen these things before, before the internet age and like in the internet age. And is it really misinformation that's actually driving this? Or is this kind of like a natural cycle because we had Trump at the same time that we had Victor Orban at the same time that we had Bolsonaro in Brazil at the same time that we had Modi in India. So like all of these things kind of happen everywhere at once. And is it just kind of like a, a natural feeling that is leading people kind of back towards the nationalism of the 1940s and 50s? And like how much of it can we ascribe to Trump? Like, was he just kind of the right character at the right time? And like, you know, he was a laughing stock in the nineties and now he's where he is today. I, I really went like very far from where I started to where I ended, but I hope you stayed with me a little bit. I'm curious if, sure. if you got any thoughts on that. So I think it's natural in the sense that we as a human civilization maybe particularly Western civilization, has been on a march towards globalization for a century and a half now, at least, uh, pretty much since like transatlantic communication became more ubiquitous. And it has just, it has you know, intensified and uh, it has become much more rapid in recent decades with uh, the internet and the, the flow of information and the ability to trade uh, across uh, boundaries and lines and oceans. But it has been good. It's been good for a lot of people, but it's also not been good for a lot of people. And so there is, like I think you're alluding to, just an inevitable backlash amongst people. We, we've talked about it a lot in the United States where like globalization has allowed for upper class people to jump ahead leaps and bounds. But there have been people that have been left behind. And not only, not only upper class people, but it's brought a lot of people out of poverty all over the world. But it has also left a lot of people behind. And People, it's it's easy to see here in the United States when we look at some of like the manufacturing sections or some of the the places where that we used to be that we used to do here, like we used to make things in the United States, right? Like some of the kind of the businesses and 
sectors of the economy that used to exist in the United States isn't here anymore. But I, I'm quite sure that those similar issues are happening in France and are happening in, in Hungary and are happening in Brazil and India. And then you look around and people look different from you. And it's easy. It's just easy to say that let's go back to how things were before. Things were better before. And so I want to go to go back to that. South Park has these things called like the member berries in recent years where it's kind of stupid, but it's everyone being like, oh, remember when things were better? Yeah, remember? Remember that? Remember that? Like, yeah, that was way better. And so I do think that's it's natural and it's good, I think, a little bit to step outside the United States bubble that we get ourselves in and see how this this is a trend that's happening uh, all, all over the world. Yeah. And it's, I, I mean, I think there's, there's that's certainly some objective truths in there, right? Like we see the steel mills that were kind of the engines for booming towns in Ohio and in, you know, other parts of the mid Atlantic that have, you know, 50, 40% of them abandoned for steel plants in China or India or, or, or whatever. And there is, certainly a sense that people had been left behind by globalization. But I think these characters in particular have done a great job of kind of seizing on this feeling and attributing sort of everything that's gone wrong in some of these places to to globalization, but by proxy, like global people, like foreigners, foreigners, foreigners. right? Foreigners. And like, those are foreigners, whether you're in France or in Brazil or in Hungary or the United States, it's foreigners, just not, not us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just what, sorry, I know you're like, no, no, go, no, go, go. One thing that was really interesting is looking at the map of the France like election map. I don't know if you looked at that, like where Macron won versus where Le Pen won. And it's probably not a surprise. Macron won cities. all of the big cities. And then Le Pen won all of the, like, the, the rural areas. And so very similar to when you see the United States map after, and it looks like it's red everywhere. And you're like, how did Trump lose that? Obviously, like there's people there. But like, if you look at the the French map, you're like, wow, there's a lot of Le Pen is blue in a lot of them. Like there's a lot of blue there. And even when we're talking about Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, uh, it was, he's overwhelmingly being carried by rural voters, right? And so like, those are the same people that I'm kind of referencing that are for reasons, both real and imagined, are discontent with how things were going under previous leadership. Yeah. And I think this gets back to the point that, yes, misinformation can kind of amplify the feelings, but misinformation is not going to make you unhappy if you kind of look like you weren't unhappy or misinformation is not going to take away your job or give you a job. It is simply going to like give you something else maybe to latch onto, but also somebody spoon feeding you the truth that doesn't improve your situation. Doesn't make you want to vote for them anymore either. And I think this is something particularly on the left that we have to recognize that it isn't just that, oh, these people are being lied to and they only believe lies. Like there are certainly plenty of those people out there, but like we always talk about, like there's a huge, there's over 50% of the people in the middle who are really just looking for solutions. They're looking for something to be different. 
And they're, I don't even think they're necessarily looking for the next leader to give them that. They just know maybe the current leader is not. And so they're, they're willing to take a chance. Um, and that is, it's kind of scary given like who we're getting stuck with, with candidates and like who people are like, oh, just take a flyer on this guy. Uh, whether it's Donald Trump or somebody who, you know, very well maybe like him in 2024, right? Like we've seen his ability to get through, get people through primaries. And like, that is, that, that to me is, is frightening. Although I can't say that I've been thrilled with very much of anything that Biden has been doing. (laughs) Well, that's what we just saw in France to wrap this conversation up is even Macron after he was declared the winner he came out and he said like i totally understand that a lot of people didn't vote for me because they love what has been going on here they voted for me because they were voting against her and that's i think was a large percentage of the biden votes last time too and so yeah i don't know that's not a, we're gonna stop wrapping up this yeah yeah i I think I have been hearing a little bit more about ranked choice voting and a little bit more of like momentum to change some of these institutional practices that I think continue to get us into weird ways. Oh, I guess one thing um, I will end with just out of curiosity. So France, and I, I may have just mentioned this, I'm kind of doing a little blackout of our episode here already, but France has this like provision where they require, especially in the, like, well, I guess in both the, I, I guess you would call it the primary and the, the main election, um, this like equal airtime law that if you give any one candidate a certain amount of time, you have to give like all the candidates and all the news stations like have to do this. And there are, in that primary election, some kind of like kooky candidates that have to be allowed to speak so that these elections are fair. I'm curious what you think about that, just in light of how we run our um, elections, which basically is you get the most airtime if you have the most money. Yeah, I didn't know that. So that I'm just trying to like reacting that this is just right off the top of my head. I think I like it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you have you you have to look into it because I when I heard it, I was like, "That's perfect. That's exactly what we need." Until I realized that, like, they, they let me. I wish I I wish I knew um, well, well, what some well, of these guys were running for. They're like yeah. some really nutty candidates that like had to be given airtime because of this law. Well, this would go back to my earlier point when we were on our Twitter discussion of like, all right, let's let everyone talk. And the best idea is people vote for these ideas. And like, ultimately, these nutty people that you can't even name, you can't name them because they didn't come close to winning. You know what I mean? And like, maybe there is some kind of poisoning of the well of if you're really putting some like, quote unquote, bad ideas out there. But ultimately, you got to kind of trust the voter. And it's really the opposite of what you're talking about in, in Hungary, right? Where... Orban like just decided that he was he was going to deny his primary opponent any airtime at all. And that's where I thought this is where you were heading originally, where it gets a little tricky. We've talked about how if we're going to be pro-democracy, we need to be pro-democracy no matter the outcome. 
right? Like if, even if we don't, like if Le Pen had won, we might not have liked it as the United States, but she would have been elected fairly. And so like, we, we, you just have to live with outcomes that you don't like sometimes if you live in a democracy and you believe in democracy, but then it does get tricky, of course, when you have someone like Orban who was elected fairly, right? Like quote unquote fairly, but if, if you control all of the media, is that really fair? Like that's, that's where it gets tricky, right? There's like, yeah, sure. I like democracy and I, I have to respect the outcomes, but if the outcomes are tainted, then would, that, that becomes a little more challenging. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, as a country, we have a history of sometimes picking and choosing which democratically elected. And 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 we kind of say things like, well, it wasn't really an election. It wasn't really a fair election. You could say that about Hungary, as you, as you mentioned. Right. And that, that was certainly the concern about whether that was real or overblown about potentially President Trump, right, of that if he gets in power, he's not going to relinquish it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the, the institutions are marred themselves. What? Yeah, we could go on. We've, we've talked enough. It's almost been that. Yeah. <laughs> True. I don't think we've had one recording session that started in one day and then another, and I'd like to keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> all right, buddy. Glad, glad to get it in. Indeed. Until next time. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some morning you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes Being wrong Some mornings you away The morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions we share an American ideal friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz there's hope behind the bluster cause though mainstream may not sell Full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree 
Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.